Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 1 through 8. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. If you have your journal, you'll definitely want to have that open this morning as we're going to be talking about this very first chapter as we begin our series in Revelation. The series is entitled, The Revealed Jesus. And to my left, uh, to your right, is Dr. Shane Wood, who teaches at Ozark Christian College in the New Testament area. He's also the associate academic dean there developing a grad school that we pray will soon be opening uh, in our area and excited about that. Uh, Shane and his wife Sarah and their four children are attending here at Christ Church, and they joined us this fall, and, and I've known Shane a long, long time. I uh, met him when he was a freshman in college. I was four years old at that time, if you're wondering, and uh, we've known each other that entire time. I was so young. And uh, anyway, so we met, and uh, I've always admired his mind. I've admired his spirit. He has an infectious laugh that comes in all kinds of moments, and it, he's a real guy. We were standing Thursday night waiting to come out to do this presentation, and uh, the text was being read that you just heard on the video. And I looked over at Shane and I told him earlier, I said, I wonder if as many times as he's taught through Revelation, his PhD work is in Revelation. So he has studied this and he's passionate about it, but he's talked about it hundreds of times. And I was, was wondering, does he ever get tired of talking about this? And he was watching the video back there and he looks at me and he goes, I love this book. <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, you do. And it shows. And you'll see that this morning as he shares. Uh, Shane, we're going to be looking at this book, and the focus of our sermon series for the next nine weeks is going to be on the revealed Jesus. There's something in the Revelation that we need to focus. The first five words, if you can all see it in your text, uh, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, or some say the revelation from Jesus Christ. Those first five words are so instructive. Uh, What do you have to share with us about those in particular? Yeah, man, the first, the first words matter. I think that's what I would say right off the very, just the very beginning. First words are a big deal. Um, especially like I'm, I'm a dad of four kids. 
And man, the, 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 the first step's a big deal. Whenever they rolled over for the first time, it was a big deal. Their first words were a huge deal, especially if they said mama or dada. <laughs> because a lot of times first words communicate value. They communicate the purpose, the direction. They communicate something that matters to you. It's kind of like closing words or last words. You always wanna be at the bedside of a loved one at their final words because there's something about the last words that matter. And the same is true with the first words. And the reason why I love the first words of Revelation is because it's also simultaneously the most important and the thing we forget the most as we're reading the rest of the book. That, that this is the book of Revelation at its very core is about Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It is, it is revealing more than anything who Jesus is. Like a lot of times, what's weird is that's almost like people like I say that or we talk about it and they're like, well, that's, they're kind of bummed. They're like, I thought we were gonna be predicting stuff and I thought we were gonna be, you're gonna be telling me what's gonna happen right before the fourth bowl is poured out. And it's like, how does the revelation of Jesus Christ become something that we're bummed about? Right. I mean, it's, it's like, all that this book is saying is this, you need a vivid picture of Jesus and it is going to be startlingly clear throughout the book that this book is dripping with Jesus. I, I actually was, um, I was, I was preaching on Revelation in Russia. So I mean, let that sentence just set for a minute because I feel like it's almost in That's a That's what we call a preaching flex, people. No, it wasn't. Yeah. I, was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking more like the caption of a cartoon or something like that. Preaching, you know, Revelation in Russia. Um, no, but I was, and I'm at this small church um, in, in this uh, archetypal Russian. His name was Boris. Boris. Like, he almost like, Boris. I went, I went mushroom hunting with him. Okay, just let that sink in, too. But when we, he has a fur hat, one of those fur hats, you know, and then he's got a huge goatee. Well, well Boris was the uh, paterfamilias of this church. He was, he was the patriarch. And man, we're like three or four sessions in and I'm, I'm teaching on Revelation and we get to kind of this question answer time and Boris, like he let me have it. He starts slamming his fist down on the table and he's yelling stuff in Russian and like three lines in the interpreter just stops interpreting what he's saying. And I'm like, okay, what's like, are you editing things for me? Like what's happening? And then finally, after Boris finished and slams his fist, the interpreter looks at me and he goes, he says, if what you're saying is right, then this is just like every other book in the Bible. And I said, well, tell him he's right. He's like, you want me to tell him that he's right? I said, yes, I want you to tell him that's exactly what I'm saying. That the goal of Revelation is the same goal of Matthew. That the goal of Revelation is the same goal as Romans, as 1 Corinthians, as even the book of Jonah. It's to draw us closer to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And too often, we think that's bad news. But in a day and age like today, as well as in the first century, that's the best news you could hear. So as a pastor, when we talk about Revelation, I think people fall in one of three camps or maybe they slide between two. Some people think it's risky. Some people think it's ridiculous. And some people look for its relevance. Uh, what is it? I like, you know, you're, you're a preacher, so you alliterated. I see what you did there. <laughs> risky, uh, what was it, relevant or ridiculous? Yes, um, it is risky, but, but not for the reasons that we think it's risky. Like we think it's risky because it's gonna be talking, you know, stirring up the pot and controversial issues and, and revelation will confront you. I, I will not pretend that it won't. It, it, it's not messing around. As a matter of fact, we'll even get to some of it today. And I think, that, I think that even what Mark's talking about next week, like it jumps right in and it says, we need to have a talk. 
It is risky, but it's not risky because it's going to stir up things in here. It's actually risky because it's threatening to transform you. Like the book of Revelation's goal is not prediction. Its target is not prediction. Its target is you to transform you. It is very risky, but it is risky specifically because of what it could ultimately do in you with the picture of Jesus. It is at times, let's be honest though, it can be kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's kind of terrifying. There's a dragon trying to eat a baby in chapter 12. Let that sink in. My, my poor kids, I'll never forget, because you know, we talk about this with my kids a lot, and my son comes home, uh, because in Revelation chapter 12, I'm gonna just open the veil a little bit. It's the nativity scene, it's just in a way you've never seen it before. Where there's, there's Jesus' birth, and, and yet there's this dragon, because there's this war that's raging on this holy, silent night. And my poor son, kindergarten, he comes home, he's like, Dad, is there a dragon in, in, you know, the birth of Jesus? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, Revelation 12. And he goes, I've been telling my kids or my friends at the playground, but nobody believes me. <laughs> I was like, well, I was like, I mean, just, just know you're more theologically relevant than them. Um, uh, but, but it can seem kind of ridiculous. Let's be honest. It's a terrifying book at times. As a matter of fact, I love, I love that this, my family's church home is doing a nine-week series on Revelation because I was basically born in a pew and I never heard a sermon on Revelation growing up. You didn't touch it. You ignored it. You stayed away from it. And you basically took the entire Bible and from 66 books, you reduced it down to 65. However, sometimes we have the other problem. And this is where the relevance thing comes in. Sometimes we take the entire 66 books and some people want to reduce it down to one book and everything they read is about the book of Revelation, even what they see on, you know, CNN, Revelation. No, Revelation is doing what every other book is doing, drawing us closer to Jesus by giving us a picture of Jesus. It is risky and it at times can feel ridiculous, but the relevance of it is not through predicting things through present newspaper events. The relevance of it is because the picture of Jesus never goes out of style. It's something that every generation desperately needs, whether we know it or not. I was trying to find somebody who'd be passionate about this, but I only found Shane. Uh, <laughs> I so, told you, you got to pull the leash sometimes, man. I get dude, too don't. excited. I love it. Just keep going. <laughs> so I would normally ask Shane, and we did this Thursday, I asked him, how, do you, how are we to interpret an apocalyptic writing such as John's, the revelation that God gave John? And yet what we found was more effective is I just want Shane to walk the text with us because he'll answer the question and how he walks us through chapter one. How are we to read this? How are we to look at it? So make sure you have your Bibles open now because we're going to walk back and forth through the first chapter of Revelation. If you have a journal, this is why we provided them for you to take notes, write questions, listen to some of the references that aren't going to appear on the screen. So Shane, when we walk through this, walk us through the first chapter and show us how to see this. Yeah. Uh, first words matter. Like, again, like what, what, not even just the first five words, but really this first chunk sets the tone for the entire book. And so, so as you're going over the next nine weeks, please keep remembering that chapter one is setting the tone because you will be want to be tempted to allow the picture of Jesus to get lost in the craziness of the, of the locusts and of the bulls and of the trumpets. And, but chapter one sets the tone. So let's just, let's just start plowing through. Chapter one, verse one the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of the translations, as Mark said, say from. I like the word of, and here's the reason why. With the word of, it could mean from. The revelation of Jesus Christ could be from him, but it could also mean about. And, and both are true in Revelation. It is both from him and about him. 
This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John, that's, that's the apostle, one of Jesus' disciples. We'll talk about him a little bit more here in just a minute. But he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies. Circle that word if you have a, you know, a Bible or a journal, um, as Mark is wont to say, you know, God will forgive you if you write in your Bible. So, so go ahead and write in it. Uh, circle the word testifies. We're gonna, I'm going to actually give you three different times that the same Greek word is used, and I'll tell you later what it is, bringing, what, what it is actually um, meaning. So testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony. Circle that one. It's actually the same, same Greek word, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's interesting, is at this point, you're, people are kind of feeling pretty good. People are like, okay, it's about Jesus, and God gave it to Jesus, and Jesus gave it to his servant, and John, and John's giving it to everybody else. Here's one of the key interpretive tools that will help you. We have to remember this book was written to real people at a real time going through real things. And it's easy to forget that. You know, by all of the New Testament, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit has preserved these books, but we're overhearing conversations. Like, like whenever Paul sat down to write Romans, he wasn't going like, and this will be the theological treatise that will overwhelm all theologians from here. No, there was a group of Christians in Rome that he needed to talk to some issues about, which is why he talks about dietary laws and eating meat sacrificed to idols, because they were going through real issues. And they needed their minister to speak to them about the issues. And Revelation's the same. And you see this emphasized in the first chapter, and frankly, the first three chapters pretty clearly. So look down at verse four. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It tells you right there. That's who it's, this is written to. So flip over to verse 11. It's in red letters, so you know Jesus said it. Uh, which Jesus then says, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists them. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And those will be the seven churches that, that Mark will preach on next week that covers chapters two and three. It's messages to them. So let me tell you what they're going through. This group of Christians is living at the end of the first century. And it looks like the world is spiraling out of control. Rome is in a very dark time at this point. Their emperor that's reigning, his name is Domitian, and uh, he's a bona fide psycho. Like, there's no other way to say it. The guy is terrifying. He's, and it's not just to, to Christians. He's actually killing Roman senators in mass. He's killing anyone that crosses him. But one of his number one people that he has in the crosshairs was the Jewish people. And at this time, Jews and Christians were not really seen as very different. So you have Christians caught in this crossfire. And at times, you even have the, the, the Jewish communities putting Christians up between them and Rome as a shield. And Christians are being, being forced to deal with issues like this, like in Thyatira. One of the questions that they had to ask was, do I worship this idol, this deity, so that I can be a part of this trade guild and make money for my family? Or do I stay committed to Jesus and not know how I'm going to feed my family? And now all of a sudden, John, verse 9 shows us, I, John, your brother and companion of the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. Like, no, notice how he characterizes the kingdom. He bookends it with two things that we try to avoid at all costs. He says, you want to you know what our kingdom's about? 
It's about suffering and patient endurance. Suffering and refusing to retaliate, kind of like Jesus did on the cross. That are ours in Jesus. He was on the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony. Circle that word again. The testimony of Jesus. John has been exiled to the island of Patmos because he was preaching the word of God. So now picture this moment, Rome spiraling, the Christians are dealing with things in their city, and now the last living apostle has been sent to an island, and it's possible that he will die there. They're in a time of fear. They're in a time of possible compromise. They're in a time where they are desperate for a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is what's interesting. So that's the people, but then verse three, all verse three, If you're in the pews of the first century and verse three comes, you're like, cheery, this is great. And then a word hits and your stomach would drop. Okay, so let's read it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Okay, there's two things in that first half we have to to pull apart. First of all, there's a blessing on the one who reads aloud because most people in the ancient world were illiterate. They didn't know how to read. So like whenever Paul would, would write his letters to, to the Corinthian church, somebody would be designated to read the letter out loud because 70 to 80% of the people in the pews would not have been able to read. So th- this is a proclamation, a blessing on the one that is reading this book. But notice if you look at the last half of that book, or that last, not book, verse, it says, and blessed are those who hear it. So the text begins with a blessing on the one that is speaking and the one that is hearing, the mouth and the ear. But the word right in the middle, prophecy, would have made their stomach drop. But it doesn't for us. And here's the reason why. We typically define prophecy as prophecy equals prediction. Like that's just, we just assume that. What's interesting is if you even go type into Google, prophecy, just type in the word, you'll have over 70 million websites come up and almost all of them are connected to a prediction. But, but I'm a nerd, and I mean, just proud of it. Uh, it's just what I do. And so I was like, huh, I wonder how the Bible defines the word prophecy. That's always a good thing to ask. 90% of the time, whenever I get questions from people, my first thought is, ah, but we need to define that word, and not just how you and I think about it, but how the Bible actually t- instructs us about it. So I looked up in the Hebrew, Aramaic, and the Greek, every time the words prophecy, prophesy, and to prophesy are used in the entire Bible. And this is the question I asked. When those words are used, how often is a prediction in the context? And here's what I found. Prophecy, prophesying to prophesy have a prediction in their context around 17% of the time. Which means that 83% of the time that those words are talked about, there is something bigger than just merely telling us about the future that's at stake. As a matter of fact, do you, do you know when prophets usually arose Old and New Testament? Like your Daniels and your Ezekiels and your Isaiahs. They arose when God's people were in rebellion against his law. That's when prophets came on the scene. Prophets would come on the scene and they would look at God's people and they would say, we need to have a talk because you're violating the very things God has asked you to do. And all of a sudden, these churches in Asia Minor who are going through a tough time, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and their stomach drops. They're like, oh, you saw that? <laughs> like, oh, man, I thought I, 
thought I got a get out of jail free card on that one. And it gets worse in chapters two and three, which Mark will bring out next week. But prophecy is a confrontation. As a matter of fact, prophecy always does. Every single prophetic book always has three things that it always does. Number one, it reveals who God is. Because when you're in a time of rebellion or you're in a time where you need comfort, what you need most is a vivid picture of who God is. That's what you need. The second thing is, is all prophetic books also reveal what God desires, which is why Revelation ends in chapters 21 and 22 in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he desires, to be with us. Matter of fact, you talk about getting excited. Revelation 21, 1 through 7, God gets giddy. He's like, oh my goodness, now the heavens are, I'm going to be with you and you're going to be with me and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And I'm like, I feel like I'm talking to my kid that just came off the playground. He's like, dad, the slide, the slide's so cool. And I went down the slide and up the slide. And I'm like, okay, you're excited. What God desires is to be with us for eternity. But he doesn't wait for eternity to happen before he starts that. But then the third thing, every prophetic book, who God is, what God desires, every prophetic book has this. And what does God demand of his people? Every prophetic book is expecting a response from the people that it is being read to. And usually the response has something to do with repentance, which is why this book indeed is risky. (laughs) I'm done talking. (laughs) I don't know if I I handed that off very well, but... I don't want you to be. Okay, Uh, well... (laughs) One of the reasons we're doing this series, so you can recall, is, and I know we're going to be up to some criticism, but please understand our purpose. We're not going to cover every verse. We're not going to cover every image. We're not going to answer every question. What we want to focus on is who do we see Jesus to be? That's the most important thing we as a body, we're not going to avoid. You can ask any question and I'll send him to Shane. Okay, deal? (laughs) I had someone walk out and said, how many of these sermons is he doing? I said, one, and they went, oh. Okay, so... (laughs) So I'm ready. Uh, We'll just use him. Uh, But at the end of the day, what I really want you to know is we want to see Jesus in the midst of the turmoil these churches were facing like we're facing it. Mm -hmm. And so when you look like uh, in verse 4 there, Mm -hmm. when it defines who Jesus is, walk us through that. Oh, yeah. Again, this this actually, the, the, the first chapter doesn't just say this is about Jesus in the first five words. It hammers on it. Like multiple times. And and verse four is the second half of verse four is where it starts to ramp up. And it is super, and he used the word apocalyptic, which is a $25 word. So I'll use a $25 word, Trinitarian. It has the father, the son, and the spirit right at the very beginning. So grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. You're gonna see that repeat itself multiple times throughout Revelation. One of the more like, you know, dramatic moments when that happens is in Revelation 4. You have this throne. John is called up to the throne room of God. And you see 24 elders with crowns sitting on thrones around the throne. And then you see four living creatures, which summarize all of creation. And they surround the throne of God. And it says, day and night without ceasing. They never stop. All of creation never stops crying out. Holy, holy, holy. Notice that. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. And then do you know how that verse ends? Come on. There we go. Who was and is and is to come. I'm a teacher, so usually the back and forth is is where I live. Okay. Who was and is and is to come. There's something important about the eternality of God that sets him apart from every single person and every single government that claims sovereignty. 
Because one of the things that Rome always had an issue with is you claim to be so sovereign, you claim to be so powerful, you even put on your, co- your coins, Roma Eterna, which means eternality of Rome, and yet we watch your emperors die every several years. God is eternal, therefore he doesn't just have sovereignty. He's able to both rule and to fix what is broken in this world. So one of my favorite preachers uh, down in Texas, his name is Rick Atchley. And Rick says, we all want a God that is so big, he can do absolutely anything. But we also want him to be so small, we can understand everything that he does. And the problem is you can't have both. The who was and is and is to come is emphasizing the grandeur, the magnificence, the eternality of God. Because you need a God that's that big to fix everything that's broken in you and in the world around you. Then he moves on. And from the seven spirits before his throne. That's the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, I usually say this a lot. It it may not make a lot of sense now, but as we keep going on both Sunday mornings and then even Wednesday nights with Jim Dalrymple, this, this will become important. In the book of Revelation, you don't measure numbers. You weigh them. They have symbolic weight. And we do this in our culture too. Like um, 9-11, does that have a weight? Yeah, it's not, nobody's going like, hey, you skipped 10. Like, no, like everybody knows where they were whenever those two numbers started to mean something in our culture. They have a weight to them. A matter of fact, uh, another Russia story. So, I mean, apparently I've only preached in Russia and here. Um, but uh, but I, there was this interpreter, she was wonderful. Her name was Helen. And I was like, man, I want to do something nice to her. So I was talking to one of the other guys. I was like, hey, can we buy her a dozen roses? And he was like, why would we do that? I was like, because she's awesome. Like I just said that. He goes, but in our culture, an even number of roses means you want her to die. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) I was like, I mean, give her 13 roses. And I mean, which in America means bad luck, but that's a whole nother issue. Numbers have weight and they do for, for the Jewish text too. The number seven is a number of completion usually attached to a creative act. Does that surprise you? I mean, have you, you read Genesis 1 lately? The creative act where all things come into existence. It happens in seven days and somebody usually be like, actually it was created in six days. Then why did God add a seventh? Because ultimately you don't fully understand the importance of work until you know how to rest completely in the Lord. So, so you have this, the one who is to come, or who was and is and is to come. You have the seven spirits for the throne, and then it gets even more fun. And from Jesus Christ, who is, and you're going to get a threefold description of Jesus, who is the faithful witness. Circle the word witness. I've had you circle uh, the word testimony, testifies, and then testimony again, right? All of those are the exact same word as the word witness. And that's where we get the English word martyr the one that testifies and bears witness even to the point of their own death. So right here when it says the faithful witness, it's invoking the cross of Jesus. Then the firstborn from the dead, what is that invoking? The firstborn from the dead. Oh, I had so much hope for the nine o'clock hour. What's it? Like if, if he's firstborn from the dead, what's it pointing to in the story of Jesus? Resurrection. Resurrection. <laughs> you cheated, but you did well. The resurrection, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, don't get me wrong, the cross is, is important, you know? I mean, it's kind of a big deal too, but many people were crucified throughout the history of the world, especially by Rome. There were even two other people on the same day Jesus was crucified, crucified next to him. But what sets Jesus' crucifixion in a totally different category 
is that the tomb was empty. So he is the faithful witness, but he's the firstborn from the dead. And you may not be able to see it right here because we oftentimes don't associate it with this term, but the third thing is the ascension. Because the ascension is always around kingdoms and reigning. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And here's why that's fascinating. This is being said in the midst of Rome. And if you basically say that, Rome goes, I'm sorry, who did you say was the ruler of what now? Like, you want to know why these Christians were in conflict with Rome? Is because Rome was claiming the same titles and the same things for themselves that belonged to Jesus alone. And eventually it collides. And so the Christians are finding themselves in this space where the picture of Jesus is calling them not to more compromise, but to a confrontation where it is not really them. They're not trying to attack Rome, but Rome will eventually attack them. And that's even what happens in the second century to the church. Now, here's how that all makes sense. There's a quote by a um, a preacher by the name of Stuart Briscoe. Stuart Briscoe once said, the more you tell someone who they are, the less you have to tell them what to do. Because action flows from identity. So I, I do this with my kids. I don't know what service they're gonna be in today, but, but I, like the first six, seven years of my kids' lives, every morning when we went to school, I would always do the same mantra. I would say, okay, who are we? Identity question, who are we? We're the Wood family, I'm, that's their voice. They're usually tired, okay? We're the Wood family. It's like, okay, now who's the Wood family? We're Christians, and what do Christians do? That's what I would always ask. Now, my youngest right now, he, he actually supposedly is not supposed, I, I only do it like through first grade, but he's in second grade. He's like, dad, I, I need you to keep doing it one more year. And I was like, okay, I'm glad you know who you are, son. You're like, I just need one more reps. I just need one more year of reps. I'm like, okay. So right now I say, okay, well, Robert, then what do Christians do? Christians love people, they don't lie, they don't hurt people with their hands or their feet or their mouths because you know sometimes our words can be sharp. And then I always say this, I say, remember who you are. And so now my, my oldest, who's gonna be 17 on Monday, whenever my oldest leaves the house, just last night, I said, hey Zion, hey, I just need you to remember who you are. He's like, I know dad, I know. I like, Why, because your identity dictates your actions. It flows from that. So who then are we as Christians? Well, it's the reason why you need a depiction of who God is because his identity gives you your identity and that dictates your actions. So notice we go through this Trinitarian text in four and five. Now listen to this, the last half of verse five. To him who, has, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he gave us an exodus from sin. He, he released us, liberated us from death and has made us, it's gonna be identity language. He's created us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God the Father. A kingdom and priests, which says this, first of all, you are royalty and you should act as such. I I, I talk to my students about this a lot because man, one of the things I have found is that self-hate is not rare. Like even in the church, we usually like to talk down to ourselves. We just want to baptize it. We call it humility. Listen, humility is not divine depression. It is not lashing yourself enough so that then you can feel holy. No, actually humility is knowing exactly who you are, not higher, not lower. 
exactly who you are. And how do you know that? Who God tells you that you are. You are a son and daughter of the king. So berating yourself is actually an argument with the Lord and how he sees you. (laughs) Our identity matters because it might actually then change the way we treat ourselves and what do you know, other people. That's the reason why Jesus says the second greatest commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. So if you don't know how to love yourself, don't be surprised when you don't know how to love your neighbor. And don't be surprised when you struggle then to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have to believe what he says that you are. You are royalty. And you are priests. Priests were the bridge between humanity and divinity. They were the go-between. Priests were the ones that were offering the sacrifices on behalf of all the people. The priests were the ones, they were the bridge. And I tell my kids this a lot. I say, hey, listen, you are to be the bridge from the broken to the healer. Just don't be surprised whenever you get walked on like the bridge does because bridges are trampled. But ultimately, his identity gives us our identity and our actions then flow from it. Notice how much at this point, if we talked about prediction, it would almost be a bummer. No, let's talk about this more. Well, good, because that's what Revelation's about. <laughs> this. So you talk about identity and here's John. John called himself the beloved. He knew Jesus loved him. He spent as much time with Jesus as any other human being did. He knew him as well as you could know God on earth. And yet in verses 12 through 17, Hmm. when he sees Jesus in glorified state, it drops him to his knees in fear. So when we talk about identity, I love it because when we know who God is and we know who we are, and I love that no higher or lesser than we actually are, sinners saved by the grace of Christ. Uh, walk us through as quickly as you possibly can. Walk us through verses 12 through 17. What was that supposed to mean? (laughs) (laughs) I got a lunch date. Uh, Walk us through what you see there because it's a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and it's the first snapshot we get to see. Yeah, this sets the tone. And I I love how you even, you did bring up that John does call himself beloved and there's nothing that's really arrogant about that at all. It's just embracing what Christ calls us. You are my beloved. And he embraces the identity. And yet, there's still a reverence there. So whenever I was in college, we used to have these shirts that were like really popular at the time that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And I was always like, what, 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 like, what is happening there? Like Jesus is my homeboy? Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, 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 saying that I am a friend of God is wrong because he actually calls us that. Like that's scripture. But there's an irreverence to homeboy language. And and I always point to this text. I'm like, now John hung out with Jesus for three years while he was in the flesh, three years. And yet whenever John sees Jesus, you know where he finds himself? With his face buried into the sand at at the feet of Jesus' sandals. But this is the beautiful thing. These two verses I'm about ready to read, I think summarizes all the book of Revelation. Verse 17, chapter one, verse 17. When I, John, saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Like John's like, this is my friend, and yet this is my king, and he buries his head in the sand. And that is our natural response if we truly know who Jesus is and we truly know who we are. But what I love is John's natural response is followed up by God's natural response to us. Then Jesus reached out his right hand and placed it on him. That God makes the first move in our deadness. He reaches out and puts, puts his hand on our shoulder and says what? 
Fear not, do not be afraid. Fear is a powerful thing. As a matter of fact, we've learned in the 21st century that fear sells better than sex. And if you can make people afraid, you can make them do whatever you want. And yet 365 times in the Bible, we have this command, do not be afraid. And usually it's coming from the one that we should fear. (laughs) Because like Isaiah, we would cry out, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And yet God reaches out and touches and he says, okay, don't be afraid. Why? Because I am the first and the last eternal one. I am the living one, resurrection. I was dead, death, a crucifixion, but now look, I'm alive forever and ever, resurrection, and I hold the keys of death and Hades, ascension, sovereignty, power. You see, John falls down as though dead, yet Christ reaches across the chasm and puts his hand on him to heal him. That's the book of Revelation. And in a time like this, that's what we need more than anything is this clear picture of God pursuing us. Because let's be honest, 2021 is still covered in the residue of 2020, and that was hardly a banner year for Christians, for our country. It was brutal. And there's a part of this where revelation is coming straight face to face with us, and it's saying, we need to have a talk. I find it very God-ordained that Mark didn't plan this sermon series at the beginning of 2021. When did, when did you come up with this sermon series? In the summer. In the The Holy Spirit is moving. He's saying, we're going to need to have a talk, church. Here's one of the images, though, I want you to keep in your mind over the next eight weeks. Go up to verses 12 and 13. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. I'm emphasizing that for a reason. And amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Who is that someone like a son of man? Guess. Jesus, he calls himself son of man all the time in Mark's gospel. And that's actually a reference to Daniel chapter seven. As a matter of fact, for your own study, just kind of put outside of verses 12 through 16, put Daniel chapter seven, verses nine through 13. Read that passage and see, ask yourself the question, does it sound familiar when I get to the description of Jesus? It's almost verbatim at times with certain lines. But it's the lampstands I find fascinating. Go down to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. But listen to this last line. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's my question. Where was Jesus walking in verse 14? Amongst the lampstands. Among the churches. And that's such a truth we need to hold on to here in 2021. Because if we honestly believed that Jesus was walking amongst us right now, we might tweet things out a little differently. We might speak about the people down the pew from us a little bit more carefully. And we might even treat the people that disagree with us over political platforms with a little more dignity. Because if Jesus is amongst the lampstands, don't be surprised when he sees everything you're doing, positive and negative. And that can be comforting if you're being obedient, but you're being beaten by the world. But it can be terrifying if you are compromising what it is that Christ has called you to because you've simply forgotten who you are by forgetting who he is. And that's what revelation is going to be all about. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Would you help me appreciate Shane in his time with us this morning? I've asked him to uh, step out a little bit earlier than I do this morning so he can go out in the foyer. And I don't want to sound like a book signing or you have to kiss his ring. He makes me kiss his ring. You don't have to. But actually, he is one of us and uh, joining our family. And I'd like you to introduce yourself. And it may take a couple of weeks to be able to do this, but uh, he's a good man. He loves Jesus. And he's got a lot of wisdom in him. And so if you'd like to meet him, he'll be out in the foyer to meet with you, pray with you, whatever you need. I'm going to ask you to read Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 this next week. We're going to be covering chapters 2 and 3, as he referenced already next week, in a message called, uh, He Knows. Because of what we just learned about the lampstands, you're going to see his letters to the seven churches are actually letters to people like you and I, and there's a caution, there's an encouragement, and there's a warning. And in the midst of all of that, we want to hold dearly to that. So be familiar with those texts. As you know, on a Sunday morning, we could not read every verse and go through every single moment. But we're going to talk about what we see as our second snapshot of Jesus, as the one who's among the church, walking and caring and loving us really, really well. Last thing I want to say before I let you go, I'll go today because I see a lot of red in the room. As your pastor, I want you, no, I want you to remember that. I'm a Bears fan, so I'm speaking only in holiness. Here we go. I want you to know every promise you make this afternoon in the middle of that game to God, he takes seriously. See you all next week. Love you. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.